very quickly, we have a Patreon that you are more than welcome to support and cool stuff happens and you can listen to other things that are not this primary podcast. And if you can't or don't want to, that's also the bee's knees. And you are the bee's knees and you are our real dad if you want to be. We talked about angels in America and that's what we're going to have this show about. Oh, wow. That was weird. Yeah, I'm really excited about this one. No, we're going to have the show about it. I love it. (laughs) None of the verbs that we use to describe things really make sense when you think about them. It's just there's ones that we use a lot so that we don't think about how they don't make sense anymore. We just settled on not thinking about them anymore. Who is on this show with us? We had Emma Copley Eisenberg on this show with us. She is the author of The Third Rainbow Girl, and she is a friend of mine um, of several years, and I felt like she was the right person to take us on this journey. I agree. I think it was she was a glorious person to go on this journey with. So Angels in America, as anyone who has seen it knows, is long, and we are a show that just looks at dads. So there's a strong chance that your favorite part of Angels in America might not have gotten covered in our conversation. Unless your favorite part is the parts with Roy Cohn. Yeah, if Roy Cohn's your favorite part of Angels in America, this show is for you. We covered this because we wanted to do something that was Trump adjacent and not have to deal with Trump head on. And we covered it also because Angels in America is amazing. And there's a really incredible connection between Roy Cohn and Donald Trump. So that this is the lens through which we looked at that connection. Yeah. And the Roy Cohn parts are some of my favorite parts of Angels in America. So I had a wonderful time. Big Pacino. (laughs) Yeah, anything where Al Pacino is old and shouting, I'm basically there. This was also meaningful to me because after Trump was elected, I had the urge to read Angels in America and really immersed myself in that piece of writing. And I feel like it was where I turned to for answers based on this worldview that like to me, you know, made sense for, you know, all of the years of my life preceding this realization, but which this election just shook me enough to get me to recognize, which is like, oh, like God left. (laughs) I mean, he was never really here. I don't personally think, but like the angels in America universe is one where God did create the universe and did used to be around And then he just left. He just left one day. You know, that was how I I felt in in the aftermath of that election, you know, and and I, I don't think that there was ever anyone taking care of us, but I was able to believe in that illusion. And I feel like very, very, very broadly, this play is a story about what do we do when we give up on dad coming home to take care of us? or save us or tell us what to do and how we have to forge intimacy when we give up on authority figures. And it's also just one of the most beautiful pieces of art I've ever experienced in my life. I love that as a way of trying to encounter Trump because it's like, I'm tired of, (laughs) I'm tired of hearing him. I'm tired of him taking up space, you know, in my in my brain. I feel like one of the things we don't even really have time to talk about is how like this situation means that, you know, even if you disagree with every iota of the man and his philosophy, you have to welcome his voice into your home 
to understand what's going on in the world. That's a lot of that voice <laughs> covering the whole country. I just love this as a way to talk about what's going on by talking about a work that expands your heart instead of squeezing it in a rusty fist. It would be great if we just analyzed everything about 2020 through the lens of like radical 1980s theater. Like I think that that would be the, um, I think that that would be the best approach. Like all hard things that we cover on the show, I appreciated doing it through a lens of something that was incredibly enjoyable and made my heart bigger. Before we move on, we should quickly touch upon what Angels in America is before we dive in. We watched the Mike Nichols adaptation of Tony Kushner's 1991 play about AIDS and homosexuality in the 1980s. It follows the lives of two couples, one gay and one straight. Lewis and Pryor are our gay couple, and Lewis leaves Pryor after Pryor is diagnosed with AIDS. And it follows the lives of Joe and Harper Pitt and Joe's mom, Hannah. They are Mormons that have relocated to New York for Joe's career, and Joe, it turns out, is closeted. Joe works at the law office of Roy Cohn, the McCarthyist lawyer and power broker, and also closeted gay man. And we see Cohn struggle through his diagnosis and reconciling his own mortality, or barely reconciling it. Our conversation focuses primarily on Lewis, who again leaves prior in the face of his diagnosis, and Cohn, who we wanted to talk about because of Donald Trump. Uh, Trump was, for a brief period anyway, a Cohn protege. And really, it seems like as character, morality, and philosophies go, he made quite an impact on young Trump. We will also mention Belize, a gay man who is friends with Lewis and Pryor, and comes to find himself in the often awkward position of being Roy Cohn's nurse. He is played deliciously by Jeffrey Wright. You know, all this girl talk shit is politically incorrect, you know. We should have dropped it back when we gave up drag. I'm sick. I get to be politically incorrect if it makes me feel better. You sound like Lou. This is politics, Joe. This is the game of being alive. And, and, and you think you're what? You think you're above that? Above alive is what? Dead. Any word from Lewis? How long have you been here? I don't remember. I don't give a fuck. I want Lewis. Shh. I want my fucking boyfriend. Shh. Where the fuck is he? Shh. I'm dying. I'm dying. Well, I'm ambivalent. The checks bounced. All your checks bounced, Lewis. Real love isn't ambivalent. Was it legal? Fuck legal. Am I a nice man? Fuck nice. Don't. Hey, America, Lewis. I hate this country. Nothing but a bunch of big ideas and stories and people dying and then people like you. Whatever happens, baby, I'll be here for you. Shatana. Shatana. Hello, Sarah, you have someone here. Tell us about it. <laughs> I have someone here in this blanket fort with me. This is my friend Emma Eisenberg, who I realized as we were talking whilst setting up our recording devices is the you of Philadelphia. <gasps> oh. We found them. <laughs> we can tell the difference, Alex, because you have a beard. <laughs> Emma, who are you? <laughs> I am a writer. I do live in Philadelphia. Um, I write... A lot of different things. I write fiction. I write nonfiction. I do journalism, a troubled and troubling term. 
and essays and a little bit of everything. I have one book that exists in the world called The Third Rainbow Girl, and then I have two books of fiction that will exist in the world in the next couple of years. I love The Third Rainbow Girl, by the way, Thank and I'm you. really excited that we're here in one place for this. <laughs> this is really great. Sarah enthusiastically suggested we watch a movie uh, called Angels in America that was once a play and continues to be. She'd suggested that you are perfect for this. Is there a reason for that? Uh, I think that's a Sarah question. I'm flattered that you would think of me in relation to Tony Kushner. But this was a this is a glorious assignment. What what made you think so, Sarah? I think because uh, like you, Angels in America is generous and expansive and full of themes from Judaism. Oh, I'll take it. And gayness. I mean, Judaism and gayness. Yes, and queerness. I can't believe I didn't mention that. I guess, I mean, I guess that was so obvious that it needed not be said, but yes. It need not be mentioned. Yeah, I feel like Lewis, all the coverage of Lewis is like Jewish intellectualism and queerness in one very unhappy person. And I was like, yeah, that sounds right. So in preparation for this episode, I was watching this documentary on HBO about Roy Cohn and Tony Kushner's in it. And he said that uh, in the context of his hatred for communism, of Cohn's hatred for communism, that uh, the two groups that initially and immediately got tagged as, you know, commie sympathizers were Jews, of course, and homosexuals. And that helped define his position on Jews and homosexuals, even though these are the multitudes that he contained and that Kushner contains and that you contain, Emma. (laughs) You are the entity. I think that makes sense. I am the negation of Roy Cohn, much like Belize and Roy Cohn are for each other, but not really because they're Mm. actually more connected than one might think. Ooh. All right, we're going to get into it, and I'm excited. But I first want to ask why, Sarah, when this was floated, you you floated this. I think you did. No. Didn't you? I thought, I. why is it that I always remember what are apparently or allegedly my ideas as other people's ideas? Because <laughs> I remember I was walking with my friend Emily around her neighborhood, which I have since moved into and is now my neighborhood, and you texted me with the idea of doing Angels in America as, like, an election special. And I was like, yes! Oh. Uh, I was buying wine at Shaw's when I I suggested that. So I, for some reason, also remember the exact moment that this came up. Yeah, that's great. See, this is is exactly how wrongful convictions happen, Alex, which is another theme in Emma's work, as you know. (laughs) So I think on whatever level, I think... That I have, I have thought we've been talking about this for a long time. I, I wanted to talk about this because I knew that whatever we ended up doing in October would probably be horror heavy, and I wanted to do something that was electiony, that wasn't like the candidate um, or yeah. I don't know what, what mm-hmm. else there would the, be. The Dead Zone, the dead, which <laughs> is a rather hopeful film because it's a movie. The Dead Zone would actually be horrifically sad to watch. Because it's a movie where where a candidate is revealed to be this horrible, evil, soulless man who is going to put America into nuclear war if elected. And he is rendered unelectable by the fact that he holds up a baby <laughs> to stop a sniper from shooting him at a rally. And I feel like if Trump did that, people would be like, yeah, that baby had it coming. Tear the baby up. <laughs> Cut the baby in half with a gun. Yes, 
for sure. So there's there are plenty of election movies that we could have done that have dad issues and would have been delicious. But <laughs> I thought that this would be the most fun one because somehow it's still a mystery to a lot of people, I guess, A, who Roy Cohn is. And I'm not, Roy Cohn's not the center of this movie, but is a mm-hmm. gigantic piece of this movie as a, as a fictionalized version of him. But then B, don't know that, that Donald Trump was his protege for, for a short but significant period of time. And we have in this movie a relationship between uh, fictionalized Roy Cohn and the polar opposite of Donald Trump in every way. This character is played by Patrick Wilson, whose name is Joe, I believe. Emma, I don't know anyone's name in any movie, so please prepare for this. Oh, okay. <laughs> his name is Joe Patches, something like that? Joe, I think Joe Pitt. Joe Pitt, Pitt yes. Thank you. Let's call him Patches, though. Okay, but I'll... Joe Patches. Yeah, Patches. Yes. <laughs> Joey Patches, the clown who lives in the sewers. <laughs> okay. I wanted to do this to touch on on Trump stuff without doing like a Trump thing. And there are so many beautiful like deplorable lines that one could imagine actually coming out of Cohn's mouth somehow that then feel like they sat in Trump's psyche for 40 years and then are, are now coming out. <laughs> so Emma, what is your experience with this text? The original, the, the what's his, uh, Mike Nichols version? Like what, what is your experience with this? Yeah, well, Sarah knows this, but maybe you only knew it subconsciously and not in the front of your brain, which is that my dad works in theater and was very, you know, would go to all of the shows and he was the director of the, of the Actors Union. So I saw Angels in America every time it was on Broadway, basically, except for maybe the first time because I wasn't alive or was very tiny. I mostly relate to it as a play, I guess, is the mm. moral of the story. How old were you when you first saw it? Teenager, maybe? I feel like we were reading it in school and then the first production happened and then the production that happened like two years ago I went to and it was beautiful and it's so long though that you usually have to take a break for dinner so that's one of the things that I love about it is that you see the first part the angel comes then you go to dinner (laughs) and then you come back and cry um so that's kind of how I I relate to it um and then I did watch the HBO movie whenever it came out and cried and felt a lot of feelings. Can you tell me about where you were reading this in school? Because the other day when Trump went after um, Howard Zinn and I was like, who's reading Howard Zinn in school? And so many people my age were like, I was reading Howard Zinn in school and it flipped my whole perception of what school was like for some people because we were not reading Tony Kushner and we were not reading Howard Zinn. (laughs) Where did you go to school? Rural Maine. We were reading about one page of history about slavery and then the rest of it about uh, heroes. <laughs> and then Martin Luther King took a long walk. Yeah. <laughs> that is that was exactly it. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think I read it in my 10th grade drama class. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I had like a cool teacher. You have this in your DNA. Like this is this has been around in your your psyche for a long, long time. I think so. It's kind of like that thing. Like I grew up in Chelsea, which was like a gay male neighborhood for many years. It was not fancy Chelsea. It was like there was like a guy who like stood outside his building with a parrot that my dad thought was like a front for the mob. And then there was like a leather S&M store and a porn like a gay porn store. That was like what was on our block when I was a kid. And so but I feel like. I understood that there were gay men in the world from growing up there and that and also in the theater with my dad. But queerness, Jewishness, like 
the feelings and the big concepts of Angels in America were like not things that I felt like I really understood until maybe watching it like in my 20s. And so we watched this version that has been out, I think, since the mid aughts. I watched, I remember watching it on several DVDs when it came out. (laughs) I mean, as someone who has seen both and not just both, but like various iterations of the Broadway version, how do these two compare? I think that Al Pacino's Roy Cohn is even more repulsive and despicable than the Broadway version for me. Like, I think when I saw it on Broadway, at least most recently, I had more empathy for Roy Cohn, or I felt like they were really playing up the historical context of, like, inherited trauma and inherited masculinity and all this shit. And I feel like the Al Pacino character in this movie is just, like... I mean, yeah, the stuff he says is, it's, it's sort of a, um, these little toxic masculinity bombs and toxic, uh, just spewing vile, vile stuff. And maybe it's also because you see his face up close. I'm not sure if that's why. Obviously, when you're in the audience of a play, it's the overall impression of the people on stage that you, that I think really gets in my brain. Whereas like in this one, we just see up close, like his vomit around his mouth and the lesions and the way that his like eyes pop out when he talks about money and all this stuff. Like it's just much more physical. I think this rendition, the angel, I think in the Broadway one was also a bit less scary, played up this idea of like the prophet and having these knowing things that other people can't see. I felt like was what I took from the prior angel interactions. Whereas like, I also forgot that this one is like a bit sexier. There's like lots of angel sex and angel makeout as we were discussing. And there's the angel is like fucking scary. Yeah. I love when Meryl Streep is super scared and just runs away behind the curtain. Basically, she's like, this has nothing to do with me. Like, your business is with him. I love that. Right. She's like, you're not here for me. (laughs) You're like, yes, you are Meryl Streep. Oh, my goodness. Sarah, what's your experience with Angels in America? This was a play that I first encountered as a text and have really most known as a text in my life, which I think is an interesting contrast. I first read it in high school. I remember I was like about to graduate high school. I feel like the spring of your senior year is maybe often a very special time for people. And it was for me, like there was this very expansive sense of like the world getting in and like me getting out into it, you know, freedom and possibility. And so I remember reading it sort of in that moment and it feeling very of that moment because it's about tragedy and death and terminality yet also is about sort of I don't know like first of all it was like intimacy with with parts of the world that I felt I had never been shown before in any way that felt as intimate as this and that was like despite you know the profundity of the subject matter contained a kind of exhilaration It is, in my opinion, a a story about love, basically. I mean, that's very broad, actually, as as a statement. But I don't know. It's a it's a to me a story about these people who start off very close to each other physically, but not really all sort of experiencing some sort of emotional privation and who then sort of experience these astounding intersections and intimacies and revelations and also reach accountability um, through each other and through their interactions in a way that is, uh, I don't know, in a way very hopeful. 
So it was something that I read and loved kind of as a teenager entering the world. And then part of the reason, Alex, that I immediately was like, yes, of course, let's do Angels in America for an election thing was because after Trump was elected, like the day after he was elected, sort of, uh, as I recall, I remember I went to a bookstore and I was like, I need to buy and read Angels in America. Like, I need to consume and experience it right now. And I can't remember what exactly inspired that or made me think of it, but that was how it worked out. And so I just spent like a month reading it and thinking about it and annotating the text and then immediately lost my copy, um, which has never been found, though it might be someday. So I associate it with these two times in my life when... I encountered it at different ages and and got different things from it. And I think as we do when we read stories in um, certain different periods of our lives, I sort of encountered the person that I had been when I first met it. And uh, yeah, and to me, it it felt very of the moment of Trump being elected. I knew that I had been thinking before he was elected about his connection to Roy Cohn and how odd that seemed to me that someone who had been mentored by Roy Cohn of all people was making a run at the White House like that was rather crazy and so (laughs) and so after he won I was like I think that was part of the reason that I that I went to it and it also felt like I think the right thing to read in that moment because you know it's a play where a lot of characters are dying and that is about um, a deadly plague that is being ignored by, you know, everyone who can do anything to make it better in part because of their own fear of who they are um, in Roy Cohn's case and about also, I think, just the sense of loss and, and approaching death and the experience of being like plankton living on a dying whale which I think is what we are right now (laughs) and know ourselves to be and the idea that how we treat each other in this moment reveals who we are being that makes a lot of sense Sarah because I feel like what I maybe forgot to say before I love that you think of it as a story about love and I think that it is and also of course it's a story of AIDS and this moment indeed when like people were dying with this complete disregard for their reality like it's almost a movie about like living in different political realities I feel like which feels relevant to now and like I should say too like read the being in my DNA part like my parents were downtown artists and like were hangers on at the Patti Smith you know bars that she talks about in just kids and stuff and they just witnessed you know this massacre of a lot of their friends and people that they were in community with in the 70s and 80s and so I think for them they wanted my sister and I to watch Angels in America to understand the magnitude of the disease and like the disregard for the people who died and how many people died it was sort of like a never forget kind of thing we were told like this is important you have to watch it for this reason because we lost so many people in this time I haven't had any moment in the past year, let alone past four years, in which I have felt that I've been able to, like, zoom out and see 
what is happening or see like what my existence in all of this looks or feels like. And this was great to watch because thinking about when this came out and that this came out as a statement about the moment that was happening at that time, it, it's kind of surprising to me because this feels extraordinarily retrospective. I mean, the fact that we, we just watched a version that was produced in the 2000s, there is a little bit of that in there. This was the first piece of media I have engaged with in the past handful of years where I've felt like I've been able to look into the situation we're presently in and to look into the future that this movie predicts or this the, the film version of this play predicts in which, you know, it's just an extension of the existing reality. And in the existing reality, everyone is actively crazy because the experience of being in that reality makes them crazy. Emma, I love what you said about people existing in different political realities. Can you can you talk a bit about how that manifests in Angels? Yeah, I feel like it's like I love this part, but it's also terrifying like when Roy Cohn goes to see his like fancy doctor and the doctor is like you have AIDS Roy and Roy's like no I have liver cancer (laughs) (laughs) like that's my favorite part because it's like I feel like that's exactly what's happening now this is the clout speech right right he's like he's like do you know who I can have on the other side of the phone and the doctor's like the president he's like better his wife (laughs) uses like the f word he's like only like these people have aids roy Cohn is the opposite of all of that and so i have liver cancer we know what's true but it's like rebranded in this other terms that have these a whole other set of associations and trump being like don't let the virus dominate you it's like i have liver cancer Because only weaklings have the coronavirus, you know? And that gets continued later where he says something about the world does not belong to the infirm or power does not belong to the infirm. Totally. (laughs) Which it's all I could think about with the president currently jacked on steroids, pretending like he's fine. We know that these are Trump's words because there is an association between Mm. these people. But when this was rewritten by Kushner for screen, he did not know Trump was going to be in office. That speech, the clout speech that you just mentioned that happens in the doctor's office was so fascinating to me because it really contextualized his homophobia in a way that I'd never really considered, which was he essentially says he's like, I'm a man who sometimes happens to have sex with other men. He says very plainly, if I were gay, I wouldn't be able to have the power that I have right now. So right now I am not gay. And as a result, continues to kind of battle any progress that's happening in the community and create no situation in which he will ever feel comfortable sort of identifying as what he is. You said that he in this case, like the Pacino representation of, of Cohn feels less sympathetic than is portrayed on Broadway. Tell us about Pacino's Cohn. Oh boy. With the clout speech, it's like, Right. It's not even just saying, like, if I were gay, I would have no clout. It's like he specifically says fags have AIDS. I don't. So it's this idea that a fag is not only a slur for men who have sex with men, it's a slur for people that don't count in the world. You know, like people people that don't matter. I mean, obviously, this podcast is called Why Our Dad, so I was on the lookout for it, but I didn't realize how much dad... It was in Roy Cohn. Like, he says stuff like, the most precious asset in life is the ability to be a good son. And then he says, I've had many fathers. Sometimes a father's love has to be very hard, very unjust. It seems like he feels his central role in this movie and thus, like, as a father to 
Joe is to tell everybody how bad the world is. Like, that's sort of what I took from this viewing is like Roy Cohn's job to make sure that all of his sons know that people will kill you, people will fuck you up, people will fuck you over, people will lie, steal, cheat, all this stuff. Like, his vision of the world is so bleak that then he has to die into that vision at the end, right? And it's so much more angry and so much more, like, vulnerable than I remembered. He sees the world as, it's like, step or be stepped on, destroy or be destroyed, seems like his fundamental worldview. You would think that the viewer would have pity for that, but I just didn't this time. It was really hard for me to find that for him this time. Do you think it was hard because of the moment? Ooh, maybe. There's a part where the Meryl Streep character says, I just don't have any pity. It's not a thing I have. And I feel like I'm really leaning into the Meryl Streep mama pit mood. Roy Cohn is, um, and Ethel Rosenberg does too. So all the Meryl Streep characters like delight in Roy Cohn's death. And I found I was more delighted this time than in the past, which may indeed have to do with the raving madman we have as our da- as our American <laughs> daddy right now. Right, who is who is created in part by this guy. Something this makes me think of is my favorite Roy Cohn quote about Donald Trump on the occasion of Roy Cohn being on his deathbed and Donald Trump not deigning to visit him or speak to him um, after having quietly taken all of his tasks away from him and assign them to other lawyers and just kind of going no contact with his dying mentor. Of all of this, Roy Cohn said of our president, Donald pisses ice water. (laughs) So this guy we were happy to see die in this fictional universe thinks that our president pisses ice water. (laughs) Exactly. And I feel like it's like the resurrection of Roy Cohn. You, uh, Emma, had mentioned the dad connection, and there are so many dad connections. And also, I was I was delighted to see that because obviously it gives us stuff to talk about. But he is so Cone in this movie. I keep calling it a movie, and then I feel bad that I'm calling it a movie because I know it's so much bigger than being mm. whatever. <laughs> this saga, this Fantasia. It's I think it's I believe it's called a gay Fantasia on national themes. So you can say he's in this Fantasia. Yeah. And- <laughs> Every time we see him in the gay fantasia, he's mentoring uh, Patrick Wilson's character again, Joe. His advice, not unlike anything you just said, Emma, is essentially this toughening to prepare for what the world is actually like. But he's also anyone he's bringing into his world is meant to serve him as well, which is such an interesting dad piece where he's essentially like, I'm getting you ready for how shitty the world is. And it just so happens that the shitty world is all about serving me. <laughs> right. As if there's no connection. I think there's that scene in the restaurant where Roy Cohn and his like crony are sitting there and Joe comes and it's basically like Roy Cohn is trying to give Joe a job, but only under these very certain conditions. Indeed, if Joe can serve Roy Cohn's interests and it's like, I think there's this whole idea that like being a good son or being a good father is like this business arrangement or it's it's about clout. Being a dad or being a son is essentially like a role that you serve in like a organization or a company. Because I think when he says I've had many fathers, he means people that have tortured me slash given me jobs. <laughs> and I feel like that's the vision that he's passing on to Joe. And it's also extremely homoerotic. Like there's a lot of like daddy touching and looking and Roy Cohn is sort of looking at Joe like rough trade. Like, are we going to have sex at some point? And you get the sense that like, 
Raycon sees a kind of sexual pain as a part of like the daddy son situation. Sure. Yeah, totally. And you and you see Roy Cohen in the situation says to Joe that basically like the person who treated him most like a son was Joe McCarthy. And he did because Roy was quote a good son. And by good son in that situation, he means he essentially just did all of McCarthy's bidding. And it creates this really interesting loop where again, your life is hell. I'm getting you ready for your life to be hell. And that hell actually en- ends up just being in service of me. And then there's just that cycle for forever. But then you create create hell for someone else so that it can balance out that you had to have it inflicted on you. And also, I mean, now it's, this is kind of obvious, but I just want to point it out. We have a straight patriarchal line from Joe McCarthy to our current president. Very interesting. I just feel like he's, I feel like Trump is at this point, the unspoken character in this story. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Trump's the sequel. And it's grim. And I feel like that makes sense, too, because he's if you don't do exactly what your quote unquote father says, then you break your father's heart. Like when Joe won't do exactly what he wants him to do, he says, Joe, you broke my heart. And that's this idea of you hurt me like you you took part of my being that is capable of giving love and threw it away or something. And I feel like that's how Donald Trump also talks about stuff, too. You didn't do what I wanted. So like, you're very mean. You're very mean to me. <laughs> right. Mm. And, and he in Cone's words, I mean, Cone repeatedly talks about how much he loves loyalism in this in this movie. And a really totally. interesting element of Trump is he's loyal until he can no longer use you and then you are done. Yes. Emma, you talked about there was sort of an overlap between the father stuff and in, in, in queerness in this movie, particularly around Cohn. And can I ask about this scene where he says, sometimes a father's love has to be very hard, very cold, makes a son want to be strong in a world like this. This isn't a good world. And then the next thing we see is Lewis getting fucked by that that like leather daddy stranger in the park. Can you talk about that? Because that was amazing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I feel like that was the only moment where I was like, okay, Mike Nichols, like we get it. <laughs> I was like, you don't have to literally intersperse getting fucked by a leather daddy with this <laughs> transaction between Roy Cohn and Joe. When I saw it happen, just go from boom to boom, I was like, okay, cool. The payoff is a punchline in which the guy's condom breaks. He says, and he asks Lewis if he wants to keep going. Lewis says that he wants to keep going and basically something along the lines of like, infect me with whatever you have. And then it's, it has been revealed that this guy lives with his parents <laughs> and he decides that he's going to go home and Lewis says something along the lines of like, have fun with your parents. <laughs> it's a, yeah, it's such a funny full circle of like this dad speech <laughs> that we just got from Cone. <laughs> I do like enjoy that about Angels America because I feel like even though there are these real sort of leather like pain pleasure you know Marquis de Sade like fun infection sex what's the line stuff there's always this like weird undertone of humor or botched encounter or I think it does a really good job of being like infection actually isn't sexy daddy issues actually aren't aren't fun (laughs) you know like I feel like there is a sense there underneath the play with Roy and Joe that like this is dangerous you can see from Joe's point of view that Roy Cohn is um he's not a sexy fun daddy who's gonna stop when you tell him like he's not gonna stop even when you tell him no I think if we saw Lewis getting fucked in a really fun way by this leather daddy and it being a great encounter in the park I would be like that's a really different use of that act than the way than the one we get which is indeed like this foiled silly almost like Lewis just comes off looking really 
self-destructive and not even like sexually pleased, which is enjoyable. (laughs) What are your impressions of Lewis? What do you have a good relationship with Lewis? Oh, yeah. I love Lewis. I love Lewis the way that I love Jesse Eisenberg's character in The Squid and the Whale. Yeah, that's that's good. Yes. Like when I think of Lewis, I think of his speech to Belize in the diner about how (laughs) history is to him this like continual upward trajectory of things getting better and better. Um, And he's making the speech to Belize who's a queer person of color to whom this is obviously untrue, you know, is my comprehension of that scene. And it's just a very long speech from Lewis. It just goes on and on. And I think in a way for, I don't know, I feel like he is sort of set up as maybe the straw intellectual of the story too, because he's someone who's trying to cope with what's going on by head rather than heart. And that doesn't really work out for him. Yeah, Emma, what's your take on on Lewis? I mean, I am Lewis, so thus I hate Lewis. (laughs) I was reading this Hilton Alls um, piece about Angels in America that's really, like, kind of focused on Lewis in a way that I appreciate because I literally did set out to Google, like, what do other people think about Lewis? Because I'm having such a intense reaction of, like, what a dick. Like, I just feel like the symbolic action of leaving your partner alone to die is one of the sort of few unforgivable act a person could do. And especially in this circumstance where, you know, there's no one else who will care for them. You know, often a lot of these men who are dying of AIDS had no family. That was true for Pryor in this case, right? So it's just, it's a really immoral. I find myself judging him quite harshly. So I was doing some reading about it to see if I could find some empathy for Lewis. And Hilton Alls says that um, he feels like Lewis is someone for whom love is scary and dangerous and feels like a responsibility instead of something that will make you free. And I feel like I have empathy for that position. So that helped me a little bit to understand Lewis. Watching Lewis's journey in this movie was like watching the journey of liberals in the Trump age. You know, where it's like, he's like very bright. He's got lots of great arguments. He's read all the articles. And he's not aware of how self-centered he is and his perspective is and then he has to watch kind of like the hell descend into his universe a bit you know his peers like one of his peers is is Belize who is his ex-boyfriend's friend and in maybe love interest for a minute I'm not I'm not entirely sure about how that went in in Belize here's sort of everything he's saying and it's essentially like I hate this country because of how this country is to me and you're here telling me that it's like incrementally and in, you know what is it the arc of the moral universe uh, uh, bends towards um, Lewis having a great day and Lewis has to ha- basically watch that that is not the case in real time that all of his optimism is there's some use for it, but it's also crafted and formed in opposition of his feelings towards himself, in which he's just an extraordinarily guilty, you know, put upon person. And he's the one who's putting upon himself and maybe his his faith a little bit. But then we watch him have to reconcile that none of these things that he believes are necessarily true. This world belongs to Roy Cohn's power structure and it eats up the people around him. And he has to realize how proximate 
his worldview and actions are to that. And then, you know, ideally have some good realizations throughout the movie, which he, which he does. And, and thankfully is not rewarded in like a, okay, everything's going to be fine situation. Like he's rewarded with not getting what he's trying to <laughs> get, which is the, which is the love of the partner that he's left. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like the, I mean, the title of this oeuvre epic, whatever, is Angels in America. And I feel like Lou is the America part. He loves America just like so goddamn much. What I also love about this whole work is its ambition. Like it is such a uniquely American story. Lou is there to kind of, I mean, a lot of people say he's the Tony Kushner stand-in, right? He's like the person who's trying to widen out these events to make them talk about what America means. And I feel like indeed, like it is a loss or like an awakening for Lou, but it's also no, I think none of the other characters seem so attached to the idea of sort of American greatness or American specialness as Lou does. And I have a little bit of space in my heart for that sadness, that loss, and also that weird twisted Jewish immigrant love for America. That was so interesting in this context in that America is all of those things. The fascinating thing to watch is it's not like anyone's narrative is the dominant narrative. It's that narrative that's being spun in the in the beginning in which the rabbi who I did not realize was played by Meryl Streep and don't know how I feel about it, although it's amazing kind of. <laughs> but the rabbi uh, the, the rabbi is giving a speech about what America has been to Jews in in the country and we see images of it and it's it's extraordinarily sort of beautiful and powerful and moving. And in a way it I mean it justifies the fact that Lou is obtuse to everyone else's reality this is the story he has been told his entire life and it's not an untrue story it just doesn't account for the fact that other people have equally true stories that tell an oppositional story of what america is and can be well and i love seeing him as the archetypal liberal character because i feel like you know his his panic when prior gets sick and his inability to care for or I get I mean he's not unable to love Pryor but he's unable to love him in a useful way and I feel like that directly aligns with this need to see America as a place that's like great and getting greater as opposed to again like the whale carcass that we all (laughs) live on as as plankton or, or micro feeder organisms or whatever Yes. I mean, some of the plankton are sitting in a really nice space and they're getting a lot of good nutrients and some of the plankton are not sitting in a great space. (laughs) But all of us aren't going to be here for that many more generations because this carcass is going down, man. Like to me, this story is also about, I guess, the sense of freedom that comes from embracing terminality as the American condition. We can all agree that it is. I mean, we can't all agree, but we can all three of us on this Skype call agree that it is. (laughs) Right. And like, especially after the past few years of presidency by Roy Cohn's protege. Emma is someone who relates to Lou in a big way. We see this arc in which when all of Lou's ideas are challenged in that his partner prior is now sick. He's not just sick, it's like was happening in the mid 80s, like the symptoms are immediately there. It is immediately grim and it's it's bad. He finds companionship with Roy Cohn's, one of Roy Cohn's employees. He finds love and comfort in someone who he is ideologically opposed to in every way. I mean, how how much of that 
is a statement about about Kushner realizing probably how much he had in common with Reaganite friends <laughs> that he didn't want to acknowledge. Or what 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 is that about? Do you think? Oh my god! <laughs> yeah, I like that reading of it. I feel like my brain went to a slightly different place re-talking about like the homoerotic stuff between fathers and dads. I think there's also some like son on son homoerotic stuff in this movie, you know, because I feel like Lou is sort of like the American son or like the son of the rabbi slash Meryl Streep's in the beginning. And then Joe is like this son figure to Roy Cohn. And I got kind of distracted or like down a rabbit hole reading about the Jacob and Esau and Isaac um, stories in the Bible earlier today, because like Lou, I'm a super secular Jew. I wasn't even bar mitzvahed, as he would say. And like, at the, you know, he has to perform that um, mourner's Kaddish and can't. And I certainly couldn't either. But that story is really fascinating because this idea that there are two sons, one is smooth and one is hairy, that the smooth one tricks the father into giving him a blessing that was sort of rightfully belonged to the hairy firstborn son. And I feel like there really is like some Jewish, I mean, it makes a lot of sense because Roy Cohn was like radically anti-Semitic and like self, you know, he was, he had all this shame about being Jewish. And I feel like there's this way that I also relate to like in my own dad, because my dad was very much born in an extremely anti-Semitic world and was a lawyer. And there were, you know, many, many firms who would not take him, you know, white shoe law firms that would not hire Jews at that time. And I feel like there's this idea of like, I'm Jewish and I'm hairy and I'm not right. And Joe is kind of this like smooth, blonde, Adonis figure. I just feel like all of that mixes in my mind to somehow just make complete sense that they would want to fuck each other. <laughs> yeah. He's not only not only all those things, but he's a Mormon. Like he's totally. like he's like yes. a new and improved Christian. Like he's not even just like a regular Christian, like he's uh, a new American Christian. Yeah, he's not a boring Christian. He's like a special Christian. Well, and also Mormons are interesting because their religion based on the idea of like, let's all go west across a desert to settle in an incredibly inhospitable environment. Cause, just cause, it'll work out. It's fine. It'll be fine. It's like, hmm, there are some, I, I noticed some themes here. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I, w- I want to say your theory about about sun lust is much more interesting than my theory about what, what Kushner is going through with Reaganites. <laughs> what is this about? Like, what is this at the end of the day? I like like you, I was shocked. Again, we're watching this through a lens of looking for dad stuff. And there's there is an incredible amount of dad stuff. But what what is what is this right now from a 2020 read? Like, what is what is Angels in America about? For me, Emma, it was about the ambivalence of the dying patriarch that you want your dad to die and you don't at the same time. What sort of more dad thing is there about hating your dad and being sad that he's dead? That seems like the the biggest monumental feeling for me right now in this. You know, we have God as the dad. We have Roy Cohn as the dad. We have the virus as the dad. We have um, Meryl Streep as the dad, IMHO. Um, the angel, like there's just so many dads and there's so much death. And I feel like the idea of like your dad dies before he can be redeemed and thus before your relationship with him can be redeemed is a big, big thing in this one. And knowing that your dad is causing harm or is in some way bad and thus like wanting him to die, but at the same time 
having that personal feeling of when there's no God, humans are alone. If there's no angels, it's just us. Sarah, you remarked when we talked about doing this that we haven't touched on God enough as a dad. Where does this fit into that for you? Yes. I mean, I find the angel characters interesting for their relationship to a patriarchal God. I mean, okay, so one of the key things about this universe is that God went out for a pack of cigarettes and never came back in like 1916, I believe. And so the angels, I think, exist here as like older kids, basically, or like the angels are like 13 and we're eight. I don't know. That's that's how I see it in terms of like family angel systems. What do you guys think? I think that absolutely the angels are 13 and we are eight and thus like no one is in charge. Mom and dad are out to dinner and are not coming back. When I think of God as dad, that's like the dad we have as an idealized dad is like someone who knows what's right, someone who creates life, right? Someone who watches over, makes, uh, separates light from the darkness, right? But then there's also just this incredibly punitive, random, violent dad that we see come out in lots of different religions, understandings of dads too, right? So God or the absence of God is one of the most daddy things about this movie. The fact that he's not there makes him all the more there. Right. It's a movie. It's a movie about an absent father. And we know that Joe's dad is absent as well. And I don't know to what extent he's absent. Uh, and, and maybe you have a better read on that, Emma. But he, he says to his mother about midway through, you know, he asks if his God, I love this exchange. He asks if his father loved him. And she says something along the lines of like, you're mature or grown enough to know that your father didn't love you. Now stop asking silly questions. And I was like, oh, I was not prepared to hear that. So Joe has an absent dad in his real dad. And then we all have an absent dad in God. Totally. I think that Joe's dad died because they have the part where um, Roy Cohn is like, did your dad bless you before he died? And Joe's like, no. And Roy Cohn is like, well, you should have gotten him to bless you. Like, what the fuck are you thinking? And then Roy Cohn goes on his whole thing about how I will bless you. I couldn't actually truly, like, we don't really know what the blessing is. It's like muttered and you're sort of imagining it's like some sort of random Jewish, vaguely nice thing to say. But then that's when he goes into the whole story of Jacob and Esau. And he's like, I, you didn't even have to trick me to get it, right? Jacob and Esau are Isaac's sons. Esau's the firstborn and goes into the room and is like, the dad's dying. So Isaac is dying, which is significant. So Isaac is on his deathbed and Esau says like, you know, like, what can I do for you sort of? And dad, Isaac is like, I'll bless you before I die. Like, this is important. But first you have to go out into the woods and, like, shoot me an animal, make it taste good, and then I'll eat it, and then I'll bless you, and all will be good. And Isa's like, cool, 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 goes into the woods. But while Isa's gone, um, Rebecca, the mom, is like, Jacob, like, who's the second son? The smooth one. <laughs> Isa's the hairy one. She's like, Jacob, come here, come here. And she's like, you should pretend to be Isa. Go in, feed him, like, whatever, and then he'll bless you. And that's what happens. And so basically, uh, Jacob, like, quote unquote, steals the blessing from Esau. Like, it's Esau's rightful blessing. And Jacob steals it by impersonating Esau. And what the blessing is, 
is really intense. It's, I mean, this is a paraphrased version from BibleGateway.com, but he says, the smell of my son is like the smell of the field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you plenty of rain and good soil so that you will have plenty of grain and new wine. May nations serve you and peoples bow down to you. May you be master over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. May everyone who curses you be cursed and may everyone who blesses you be blessed. I mean, it's invoked in that scene on purpose, like by Tony Kushner to have us think about that, that like a blessing from your dad makes you powerful or a blessing from your dad robs you of something. And then when Esau comes back and is like, fuck, Jacob stole my blessing. Isaac is like, well, there's no more for you. Like I only had one. And Esau's like, but can't we share? Can't you find another blessing in your heart? And Isaac is like, no, there's only one. I mean, do we think that we are left to believe that some version of that blessing is what Cohn gives to Joe? I think so. It's like he didn't get it from his dad and like there's nothing left. There's no more blessing for him. And thus he, you know, the fate of Esau is like to be a slave to his brother, essentially. And I feel like that's like maybe what Roy Cohn felt or, you know, it's it's this is it is does feel like it's some kind of transmittal of trauma from generation to generation of like, I never had enough. So there'll be not enough for you nothing left. It's funny because this is the actually the first that I've heard of this as the story of a blessing. I feel like I've always interpreted it as like there was some kind of inheritance that like Jacob was going to get stuff and I'm like, "Wait, there was never stuff involved, was there? It's just oral. <laughs> it's just ideas. <laughs> it's just feelings. <laughs> That's really kind of fantastic to me that it's like I mean it's fantastic and it's horrible because it's like are you telling me that a father's love he only got like one one little packet and he can only give it to one kid like that's a bit much I mean this is what spoke to me the most about the the Cone Trump connection Trump's dad Fred is a notorious bastard I mean just just the fucking worst Mm -hmm. The cream of the upper worst. If this man were not our president and actively just bombing the corpse so that it floats to the bottom faster, I would look at this person and be able to, at least from a literary standpoint, and be able to have great amounts of sympathy for them. It sounds like from all accounts, Trump was, despite every leg up and hand up that he that he has or had, his dad just sounds miserable. It sounds like he constantly, in one way or another, was looking for that approval. He constantly constantly sounds like a person who wants their dad just to say, I love you. Like, like good job, son. Like every, everything, like you survived coronavirus. Good job. Like, it seems like that's all that he wants from anybody. Go play catch with Ray Liotta. (laughs) Well, and we know that his great shame is the fact that he never made his own money and that he ran a casino into the ground. And now we know, you know, post his becoming president, we've learned that even at the time when he could have plausibly imagined to be running a profitable business, he never was. And he was getting these massive transfusions from daddy for his entire life. And we and we know that that's his great shame. And I feel quite certain that like everything he's doing to us is, you know, connects to that that shame in some way. And it's just so stupid. It's like, who cares? Who cares? He cares. That's who cares. He does, yeah. To see Cone portrayed in this way as a person who, you know, maybe through his own experience realized the hunger that the dadless have. 
<laughs> and that he offers that promise to them creates the illusion of the scarcity of that blessing yeah. because they, it doesn't make any sense that there's only one blessing. It only exists for the sense of a parable. And so he helps perpetuate that. And then in doing so, indebts all these people for giving them a thing that they didn't need in the first place. You know, they, they might need it personally, obviously. We all we all need better treatment from our father personally. But like, but he knows that you can give it in exchange for something from these people, which is incredibly fascinating. And this is where I think a Trump becomes detestable. Well, outside of just being in power. And but Cohn says that thing where he's essentially talking about crabs. And he says that he had crabs in a real bad way once and it took like 12 treatments to get rid of them. And through that process, he formed a loving relationship with them because you can't kill something that knows what it is. If what we get from Trump is a depraved bastard as a result of his upbringing, and at some point in his life, he just looked at himself and was like, well, this is what I am. Then he becomes indestructible and terrible and tears everything down around him. And that's what we're led to assume is the case with Cohn in in, uh, uh, this representation. Hmm. Yeah, and I think there's something about like, right, he has respect for the crabs because they just like will not fucking die. Like, I feel like I we need to talk a little bit about the lawyer aspect of Roy Cohn that his relation and his relationship to being a lawyer and practicing law, because I feel uh. like that's a big part of how he sees himself as able to just like will not fucking die. Like you can sue him, you can sue him, you can bomb him and he just like will not die because he's a lawyer. There's something about the armor of being a lawyer that he feels will protect him. And like what I think is interesting too from what you all have said is Joseph McCarthy to Roy Cohn, like lawyer, lawyer. And then Donald Trump wasn't a lawyer. Like there's something about that shift from lawyer to businessman, which is interesting too. And I love when Roy Cohn is like, Get a lawyer, sue someone. It's good for your soul. (laughs) (laughs) He says that thing where he says lawyers are the high priests of America. Yeah. And he says it's the only club he ever wanted to be a part of. I also love the fact that the angels are powerful and yet uncreative, right? They're spectacular and yet boring. Mm. And in that way, I wonder if there's supposed to be a reference to Supreme Court justices who have this, all of this pageantry and it's very theatrical and, and they are kind of, they can be spectacular at times. And yet they, by definition, aren't allowed to have new thoughts. Their entire job is to interpret the Constitution, you know, and when time moves forward to figure out how to relate to the Constitution like art restorers to sort of be as, you know, connected with the spirit of it as possible. Even, I mean, and of course they do introduce new ideas into their decisions, but they're not allowed to admit that that's what they're doing. So the the fact that we have the universe being steered by these sort of, these powerful and yet fundamentally uncreative beings. The angels are the lawyers, right? Of heaven. Mm, of the universe. Yeah, we, yeah, exactly. We see the scene where he goes up and sees all of them and they're all at desks. There's the council, but behind them, they're just all at desks like administrators. Mm, Yeah, 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 totally. And I feel like it's I love that part when the angel um, Emma Thompson comes and she's like, behold, unsheath the sacred instruments. And Pryor's like, no. And she's like, do it. He's like, no. And then she's like, fuck. And she just like sends a lightning bolt like in the kitchen and like rips up the tile. You're just like, okay, like this is this is like the extent of her like magical powers i feel like the end of the 
epic saga movie is like dad dies you know Roy Cohn dies and there's the like explosive scene with the angel and like dad kind of dies again and then after that we get life like the end of the the text is more life right and it kind of feels like we end with this like feminine mom statue who just lives in the park and and there's life after that like I feel like in order for there to be life dad has to die often (laughs) and instead of lawyers instead of lawyers we get life right and also dad dies wanting mom and dad dies disgraced as well the race against time and the way that his death is portrayed is he thinks he's gonna die before he's disbarred and he is disbarred before he dies. And he thinks that it's going to be a great coup if he dies before he's disbarred, because even in the end, they couldn't get him before he went down. And we're treated to the satisfaction of watching our bad dad die, disgraced, and being told of the disgrace by the ghost of Ethel Rosenberg, who he essentially had murdered. This show in so many ways is about how we're haunted by dad's bad behavior. And this movie is about a man who is haunted by his bad behavior. Yeah. I feel like it's also like that's the ambivalence, though, at the end is like dad dies. But it's like dad also just we have no respect for dad. You know, like there's no no one respects Roy Cohn at that point by the time he's uh, in that hospital bed. Like you've just watched him be not only like cruel and immoral and kind of sexy to a son figure in a creepy dad way, but you've also watched him be like deeply racist and deeply like fucked up in just every possible way. And so by the time you get to that moment where he's disbarred and he's going to physically die, it's like, that's what's so good about the setup is that it's, there's this ambivalence there of like, it's not even satisfying when he dies because he's already been, to everything that he cares about is already taken. It's not even fun. <laughs> like they even take that from us. And I feel like that's what's so interesting is you're left with like, do I want him to die or not? And it's like, you just don't, you don't know. I think that's what's the ambivalence is just so good about what they do with it. Mm. Al Pacino is good at these deaths. I mean, he's known for like the spectacular Scarface death, but I love the way that Al Pacino as Michael Corleone dies in The Godfather Part Three, which is like, Many years after the events of the movie, he's just sitting in this courtyard in Sicily and he's got all these dogs trotting around him. And then he just slumps and dies and he's dead. The end. <laughs> it's just like, yeah, someday. And it's nice. It's like a very, and I think it's like a very positive because he's got all these little dogs all around him, you know, and he doesn't die alone. He's not able to love or be loved by a human being anymore, but he got himself a bunch of dogs, you know, and that's. That's kind of, I don't know, it feels like that that is a much more kind of positive in a way version of, of the death that we see here. So here you go, you know, Angels in America, the the film, the Fantasia that makes The Godfather Part 3 look joyful and deathless. And it's, and it's and of course, The Godfather Part 3 doesn't leave you feeling like blessed to be alive, particularly, but the amount of loss that it, it subjects its characters to, I, I guess, just sort of pales in comparison to this. The, I feel like Angels in America is is about how the truth of who you are can reach you in a season where where you are losing everything or feel yourself to be, or where you are witnessing someone you love lose everything and realize that you haven't lost very much at all, but it still feels unendurable. This movie, like great dad movies, has so much to say about moms that we don't touch. We see that contrast in a really interesting way because 
even Cohn asks Belize, who who is a nurse in this movie, why he's helping him. Belize's response is, is ultimately something along the lines of like having sympathy for the situation because Cone is America in this movie as much as as much as Lou is America in this movie. Cone is the oppressive kind of America that, you know, creates a Roy Cone. And Belize says expressly at some point that he does not like this. He hates this country and he hates what this country sort of puts him up against. And yet he's still there to nurture and help and sort of move forward. We we do find out, you know, that his intentions are are ultimately to score some drugs, um, some experimental drugs that can be passed off into the community, which is even more maternal and amazing. Yeah, it's such an interesting contrast. We get a lot of really great mom stuff in this movie as well. Yeah, and I feel like that moment is so fascinating where, because Belize is like, here's all these tips and tricks or how to make sure you get actual medicine and not placebo and, you know, the real IZT and whatever. And Roy Cohn is like, why are you helping me? And I believe Belize goes, consider it, Uh, solidarity from one faggot to another it's empathy of like you are my people in a strange way and the last thing that Roy Khan wants to be is in community with anybody Uh. well especially in in contrast to what he says at the beginning of the uh, movie and the stuff that you had pointed out is that you know his definition of queerness is he's a man who happens to have sex with men sometimes like he's not sort of this bottom class in in sort of you know 80s parlance of like gay men he's escaped being a Jew and he can escape being gay too like he can escape all of it yeah, I st- still have a lot of sympathy for Cohn because he's not alive and he and I'm not thr- actively threatened by him. And he's not the fucking president right now, so he looks pretty good in comparison. I have so much sympathy because of just thinking of a man who lived in a world that hated both Jews and gay people and he tried to figure a way out of that. It's horrendous to think that it created him that's the kind of complicity that we can all recognize if we're honest with ourselves i feel like the kind the way that we are complicit with these structural forces i mean you know and i'm i'm maybe not maybe not everyone has moments like this where they recognize even you know a flicker of this thought pattern but i feel like it is very much the way of society to you know to completely exclude some people in some ways, but to often have something that is a little bit more squishy, where like, maybe you can enter this world, but like only if you cut off parts of yourself again and again. But like, if you keep doing it, you can stay. Mm-hmm. And I, I think a lot about Trump's fatness, like Trump as a fat person, which came up like super saliently recently when they kept just listing his weight as a number because they consider him like you know obese according to BMI um which is such bullshit like all BMI is just like crazy non-science he hates fat people so much because he is fat and I feel like there's something extremely pathological about fat little boys and fat men uh in terms of like shame about masculinity and my own father is 85 and like lives in mortal fear of being fat like he was a fat little boy and like thou shalt not ever be that weak ever again and I feel like there is a certain loathing of other people and loathing of self or in fat powerful men I just find that like fascinating Hmm. have we talked this is very relevant to both of you about the fact that in Stephen King's writing this is a a very obvious theme at least in like the early Stephen King books he hates his fat characters he hates them 
Like, it's a problem. I think it is, like, when he crosses the bridge because he writes Ben Hanscom, who's, like, one of his most lovable characters and who's a lovely, fat little boy, um, but who then loses the weight through through Pennywise. But then, and I remember reading these early Stephen King books and being like, what what is it with you, Stephen King? Like, what is this about? And then learning that Stephen King had been a fat little boy. And I was like, oh, <laughs> yeah. And then it just makes total sense, right? Classic, always. He's one of our problematic dad figures. Well, and I read all of, I read his first 10 years of published books all in a row, seven or eight years ago. And, and yeah, and when you go through them that way, you're like, okay, honey, you were being really mean over and over. And every time you wanted, it's just that standard shorthand where like, if you wanted to pick someone as weak or hateful, make them fat. Great. Good job. Well, fat in men is like pillowy, doughy, like the baker in um, Into the Woods, mm. gentleness. It gives you breasts. Like it makes you maternal in this sense. And I feel like that's beautiful. But like so many people have such loathing. Yeah. I think like flesh, being fleshy, for men is this like crazy just comes up in like such crazy pathological ways and donald trump is just nothing if not like driven by his fear of being a a fleshy plump man Hmm. and i think that it speaks also to what cone said about being sick i don't know what donald trump's personal feelings about fatness are but i do know that he looks at how society treats fat people and and is like i don't want to be treated like that Yes, we've reached this part of the Passover Seder. Emma, we know who's the dad, I guess. Well, we don't really. There are dads in this story, but we don't care about that. Who's the daddy? Meryl Streep, Hannah. I don't wait more than three and three quarters hours for anybody. Fair yet unyielding. Such a daddy. She walks to the Bronx. And then again, when she's just like, I don't feel pity. It's not a thing I have. I was like, such a daddy. (laughs) Sarah? This is an interesting question because I feel like it started off as like, who do you want to, who do you want to get fucked by, basically? And it has become like, who has authentic parenting energy? Like, who has real authority? Like, that's how I interpret it now. And and the, the latter can also remain in play. But to answer that question gotta say the angel i mean right but emma thompson as the angel specifically because i feel like if someone said the body is the garden of the soul to you like Mm -hmm. how would you respond i rest my case (laughs) (laughs) it's pretty sexy the only orgasms in that movie are associated with the angel which i appreciate it's Mm, definitely like a fun thing and also, like, I kind of like Emma Thompson as the dykey nurse, too. She seems kind of like a daddy to me. I was like, kind of into that. I was a little confused about my feelings about Emma Thompson as the nurse. But yeah, I, I, the structure of her haircut was fantastic. I would make a pitch for Belize, who I just described as sort of an extremely maternal character for a lot of reasons. Down to the fact that he, like, realpolitics the death of Cone to steal the drugs and get it to his friends and to people, people in the community who need it is so great. And um, and just I love I love that Belize kind of like a dad hears all of Lou's shit, you know, all of the conclusions he's come to and is like sort of vomiting onto him and is just like, you sound silly. Stop it. He's also played by Jeffrey Wright, who is the just absolute best. 
I love how subjective this question is too, because mine is always a little lusty. It's like, who's doing the right dad thing, but also like, who would you fuck? And like, obviously Belize is, I would be Belize's uptown man who he describes at some point. Oh, <laughs> well, yes, uptown man. Will you be a distributor? Oh, we... for sure. I will be a distributor. <laughs> yeah, you could have a little sandwich delivery bike and you could ring a ding around town delivering experimental medications. Ring a ding ding. It's, it's, it's not a situation that I have not, kind of been in uh yet and we'll hope to continue to be as the whale sinks to the bottom all right everybody that is it for the show that is it for wire dads today um like we said at the front there is a patreon with bonus content if that is of interest to you want to thank carolyn kendrick for producing the episode and making all the music in the sound collage at the beginning thank you for everything carolyn the show sounds great Thank you so much, Emma, for coming onto the show. It was a pleasure to have you. Remember Emma's book, The Third Rainbow Girl, The Long Life of a Double Murder in Appalachia is available for purchase and we hope that you purchase it. Uh, It is extraordinary. Uh, That is it for now. Please join us on social media. We are on Twitter and we are on Instagram for right now. That's where all of the conversation tends to happen. I think that's it. That's it. Go enjoy yourselves as much as humanly possible. If you haven't voted, you know, it'd be nice. All right. Thank you.